Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 9 of the Quadcast. My name is John McAleeby, and this is 2022's final installment of the podcast, which is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, but is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. I am hoping to capitalize on the super momentum we picked up from last week's show, featuring the great Tracy Iraka. Her many friends and family members listened in force and helped the quadcast run up its biggest numbers in many moons. So thank you, Tracy and co. I appreciate your efforts. Hope you liked what you heard and that you'll continue to support us. Today's guest is another amazing woman who has not let her tragic injury hold her back in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it has almost fueled her in ways to not only better circumstances for herself, but all those who have unfortunately also been similarly injured. To say that Allie Ingersoll wears many hats would be an understatement. She is a day trader, a writer, a public speaker, an avid traveler, and last year added a tiara to those hats when she was crowned Miss Wheelchair America 2022. Allie won the title of the pageant whose competition is based on advocacy, achievement, and presentation for people with disabilities in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Since then, she's been speaking about health insurance advocacy. Her platform, which centers around helping people with disabilities fight for medically necessary equipment that their insurance companies constantly deny them. If that's not all, Allie, the self-proclaimed quirky quad, has a great presence on social media. She's on Instagram, Facebook, and has her own website, quirkyquad.com, whose main banner is Normalizing Disability Through Dark Humor and Determination. Well, that just about says it all for this dynamo. Buckle up, folks, because here she comes, Miss Allie Ingersoll, begins right after this public service announcement from the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. And that, my friends, is next. Did you know that one in every 50 Americans is living with some form of paralysis? The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation wants to change that. They are dedicated to discovering cures for spinal cord injury by funding innovative research and improving the quality of life and health for all people living with paralysis. Make a difference, change a life, and redefine what it means to live with paralysis by joining the Reeve Foundation today. For more information, visit ChristopherReeve.org. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. Today's care, tomorrow's cure. Welcome back to the Quadcast, your weekly 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. And now I'd like to introduce my guest, the aforementioned Allie Ingersoll. Hello, Allie, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, John. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thanks for having me. Yes, we've been trying to put this together for a while. You are a very busy woman. And I'm glad, (laughs) right? I'm glad that we were finally able to get this on the calendar. And usually, Allie, what I like to do with all of my shows is begin at the beginning. So why don't you tell us where did you grow up and what were some things that you liked doing as a young person? I have a rather unusual upbringing. I have a German mother and an English-American father. 
And I have two older brothers and a sister. So I grew up all over the world, actually, moving every two years of my life. I lived in New England, Germany, England, France, Bahamas, Miami, L.A., and, and China, and Australia, and New Zealand. And the home base was the Bahamas. So my dad in the 70s found a very out island in the Bahamas, and we started building a family home there. And so many of us went to boarding school when we were very young. And this was always a place where we would come back and go snorkeling and fishing and camping. And it was really a place to, for our, you know, our family to connect. And um, so that was, I'm kind of a global nomad, as you could say. And I absolutely adored growing up um, outdoor adventures. I would take wilderness survival trips around the world. I moved to China when I was 16 for a few years um, and Australia and then New Zealand. So you know, I, I don't really have a linear backstory. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Did you, of all those places that you moved and lived as a younger person, what were some of the, your favorite spots? Um, I, favorite spots I've always in the Bahamas is my heart and soul. Um, but when I was 16, I graduated high school at a young age, uh, 16, 17, and I moved to China for a few years because I was young and I was stubborn and I didn't want to go to college yet because I wasn't going to be of drinking age. (laughs) (laughs) I landed in China, not really knowing any Chinese at all and made my way and and dated an Italian kickboxing instructor who didn't speak English and I didn't speak Italian. So um, eventually I learned the language for uh, love or infatuation, whatever you want to call it at that young teenage age. And I worked as a food taster, Chinese newspapers, taught English, traveled all around China. So that was a really humbling experience because I grew up very privileged in the sense of having a very strong family network. And we didn't want for anything um, in that my parents always tried to provide the most amazing opportunities of travel, but they would always make us work for it and appreciate life. But when I moved to China at such a young age, I saw a different side of life and culture and it humbled me. So you know, I've always kind of been an outcast in that kind of a loner in life, moving every two years. So I'm kind of a chameleon. I just fit into whatever culture or country I'm in at the time. Um, so by the time I went back to university um, in the United States, I was, it was very hard for me to adjust to kind of an American lifestyle and the, 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 um, don't get me wrong. I was a good partier, great partier, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, stories, fraternity. So I just, I've always been fascinated with people and cultures and understanding people's perspectives. That's a very cool outlook on life, you know, especially for someone at a young age. So now you're back from China. Where do you wind up going to college? I spent two years in Los Angeles in uh, Occidental, smaller Brooks College, majoring in economics. It was not um, for me. I was also prancing around the Playboy Mansion and partying way too much while still getting A's. My dad always said to me, your one job in life, Allie, is to get straight A's and then you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so I took that quite literally. Yes. And then I, I realized I had that I was just getting in too much trouble and I didn't see a, I didn't see a clear path of success. So I transferred to University of Miami because so much better going from L.A. to uh, South Beach. <laughs> you have found all the great spots in life from the Bahamas to L.A. to now yeah. South Beach. Wow. Yeah, I, I majored in entrepreneurship and did a lot of business plan competitions and um, lived the wildlife in Miami while flying back to the Bahamas on the weekend. So 
I was always, I have always been super appreciative of my life, the people around me, even though it could be lonely at times now, like growing up with one central community, right. And having those neighborhood barbecues. But, um, that was, those are my college years. That is terrific. So now that you're finished with college, what is the plan? What is the, is the job and the lifestyle that you're living prior to your accident? Oh. Well, college was nearly 20 years ago. So <laughs> after college, in a very, very brief summation, I, I floundered for a while. I thought life was just going to hand me a job. Life does not work that way. <laughs> so I was. Um, I, I met up with Justin Rockefeller of the Rockefeller family, and they were starting a civic engagement nonprofit um, for the political process for young people. And so I was hired uh, in Florida to open up the, the division, um, and basically put my entrepreneur skills to use. I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I got jaded after a few years of the political process and politicians themselves. So I moved back home to the Bahamas to learn to be a technical analysis day trader, um, putting myself for 12,000 page course. My dad was trading at the time, but he was always, he is very, very kind. And we would have great conversations, but you know, he's like, you have to put in the work alley, which I did. And, Life was fantastic. I was 26 and 27, living on a remote island, learning to day trade and kayaking and mm. swimming in my free time. And then um, after I graduated my studies and I was working down there, I took a shallow water diving at Tiki Head Bar in 2010. Um, and after a Herculean 22-hour effort of multiple planes and jets and thunderstorms, I got to, the, to Miami, to the uh, Miami Project where I had spinal surgery, leaving me a complete C6 quadriplegic. Wow. Um, life was, yeah, life was very challenging because a lot of people dive right back into the normal life. Um, I was one of those people, if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. <laughs> so yeah. I spent the um, next six years quite literally in and out of hospitals, just surviving life. So I didn't have a community. I didn't get back to normal life in any way, shape or form from, pulmonary embolisms to cervical cancer to spinal cysts to um, so many other complications. And um, I had giant pressure sores. And after about three years of my injury, I developed a very large cyst um, that was ascending upwards, reducing function and, my rest and affecting my respiratory system. And my dad is very smart in bio, uh, biotech and that just as a hobby. And he traveled around the world and he found a group of Swedish scientists who um, met, um, went to the People's Liberation Army of China, and there were two surgeons there working, and they were doing spinal decompression and lancing these arachnoid cysts, which is what I had. And so my dad said, you know, I speak Chinese. So he said, kid, how do you want to move back to China and have spinal surgery? I said, well, why not, right? Bring it on. So in 2013, I moved um, to China, uh, Kunming, China, Southern, and I had to learn caregiving in Chinese and neurosurgery in Chinese. Oh um, they God. operated on me, saved my life, but um, they made my life challenging. They broke multiple body parts. And I, it was, it was a very, very dark time for a while when I was in China, my parents moved over with me and then life just became very simple, very lonely. I was reading astrophysics, quantum mechanics, day trading, and it was peaceful for a while, but, after three years, eventually I was going to realize my parents were in their seventies and I had to move back to the United States. Um, and I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. My sister lives here. She's a, um, Pilates and yoga instructor. My brother's in Atlanta. So it's a family network is all within, you know, a mile or six hours from one another. 
Um, and I moved back and I thought life was going to change and I developed a leading caregiver challenges aside. I developed a very large pressure sore on my backside, a stage four, actually, mm. um, multiple surgeries later that failed. I was in bed for an entire year. So I was still day trading, reading, but I had no network. I had no community. Um, and it was, uh, but I, I created a schedule for myself every day, working, studying, trading, you name it in order to keep my mental sanity, um, went on a giant dating experiment because <laughs> <laughs> no. I was, I, I yeah, after felt like going in for my like seventh or eighth or ninth surgery, I was like, well, why not? Yeah, um, sure. but during that time in bed, I started to join spinal cord Facebook, Facebook groups mm-hmm. and it really offered me a sense of community. And I realized that I had been an advocate for myself for many years by fighting health insurance companies. Yes. And I didn't even realize it. And then I realized what a need there was for it. So I started my original advocacy career in health. And I still do that today a lot in um, fighting health insurance companies by learning how to write letters of medical necessity backed up by peer reviewed journal articles. I took this work national partnering with organizations, writing articles, fighting health insurance companies, um, and it really just blew up into this organic mission. Um, and, you know, fighting health insurance companies is not the fun advocacy, right? I wish I could right. do things that are a little more fluffy, but someone needs to do it. I don't know why I decided to pick the hardest topic on the planet. <laughs> right. Step up. You're, on the, you're the one taking one for the yeah. team. Wow. And then in 20, yeah. And then you, in 2021, leaving me where I am today, I had this kind of I was 37. I kind of had a midlife crisis and I said, I want to marry my entrepreneurship and professional skills with my advocacy life. How do I do that? I hired a career coach, went on a soul searching mission, spent nine months, literally 12 hours a day, kind of busting my ass, talking to everyone on the planet and corporations, businesses about diversity, equity, and inclusion and disability and a whole different um, areas. And I, I was convinced I was going to work in the corporate world, but I didn't have a um, any corporate experience and I didn't have like a master's. So I would make it to the final round, but um, then I just didn't have the qualifications despite being fully capable of doing a job that was not very challenging to me. Sure. Um, but then I started meeting beautiful women in smaller organizations who started offering me consulting jobs. In the world of disability strategy from um, inclusive design and disability, diversity, equity, and inclusion roadmaps for disability, started speaking to corporations, health insurance companies. Um, I ran for Miss Wiltshire, North Carolina, which I was humbly crowned in 20, November of 21. And yes. then I won Miss Wiltshire America in, in um, August of uh, 22 this year. You did. On health insurance advocacy. Yeah. And so I tell now you, I, you're blowing up all of my questions. I have all these questions and you've, and you've gone through all of them in, in one sentence ah. here. Kid. No, but this is great because what an amazing woman you are. I mean, hearing all these things and all that, this is like a, there should be a movie about you. I mean, all the, from where you grew well, up and all these different, one, actually. did you, well, you can have to <laughs> yeah. let us know when that is coming out because I am buying my popcorn already. I mean, everything there, I'm, I'm well, like, uh, yeah, we just had a dear friend of mine and a couple of the production companies wanted to film a documentary of my life and follow me around with all my advocacy and my work and so yeah. forth. And so we spent the last 10 months filming 
Um, and um, we missed all the, we are missing because of editing all of the film festivals this year because they're going on right now. Oh, yeah. So we're going to go to Sundance and Cannes and hopefully all of the, the big circuits uh, by January next year. Oh, that's awesome. Now, had you done any public speaking before this, before you were now sort of thrust out there as the face of disabilities and, uh, and folks in wheelchairs to, to kind of go to bat for all of us? Well, in college, majoring in entrepreneurship is a lot of presentations, how to start on a business. So starting in class and then um, engaging in all these business plan competitions, you have to be able to not only engage your audience, craft a message effectively, efficiently, and quickly, I might add. People don't want to hear you run on for 45 minutes about your life story. So you've got to be able to condense sometimes 10 minutes into two minutes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, sure. I don't, and when I speak, you know, I speak on serious topics, but I, my brand, my website, the quirky quad is, is, uh, I just rebranded. It's uh, normalizing disability through dark humor and determination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I add, I, I live in the world of dark humor with everything I've been through. And so many of us have been through with significant mobility impairments and wheelchair users and, you know, anyone in the pan disability community really, Right. Many of us, um, we work harder. We have these bright outlooks, even though we have the most seemingly insurmountable, like adverse challenges in front of us. And yep. I work with people in the pan disability community every day, blind, deaf, neurodiverse, wheelchair users, you name it. So for me, I love to help people. I live by two philosophies in life, pain it forward and human kindness. Yeah. People are not always kind back, but I do a lot of meditation and self-reflection and trying to be self-aware and just try to realize that, you know, there's an expression, treat people like you want to be treated. Well, it's more that treat people the way they want to be treated, right? Yes, sure. <laughs> and just being cognizant that if someone's rude to you, what are they going through in a day? Yeah, I know. Um, and I have a, I live by a seven out of 10 rule. Okay. So if it annoys me, um, under a seven, I will just humbly step back and just because clearly whatever that point someone's making to me seems very passionate and important to them. Mm-hmm. And I've learned you are not going to change a person's belief system or value system, even if it's different than your own, no matter how much you argue or rationalize or debate. Right. So, you know, humbly go your own way. Mm-hmm. If it annoys me more than a nine and it's very rude, of course, I will say something. But I am always, even though I may be yelling in my head, I'm always respectful. But for me, the name of the game is I have tremendous nerve pain. And for those of uh, many quadriplegics understand what that means. But for those that don't, it's um, when you injure your spinal cord, oftentimes you are left with this chronic debilitating pain. It comes in different forms, but essentially it can feel like burning pins and needles um, in your body 24-7. And you know, it can range from 1 to 10. I wake up with a 7 out of 10 and go to bed with a 9 out of 10. So. When I get upset or someone irritates me, it makes my pain go up or anxiety or my stress. So every day, the name of the game is how do we keep my pain down so I can be productive, help people make money, make a living and, and give back to the world. And so that is, that is my seven out of 10 rule. Now, what do you do to combat the pain? Is there anything you can do? Do you do, uh, do you use medical marijuana? Do you do, um, like, uh, in the early days, meds? I, in the early days, I tried gabapentin and Lyrica, um, and those did not work. They worked for some, they just didn't, I was not a responder. Right. I refused to ever go to opioids. One, I mean, there's a very specific reason. With chronic pain, opioids are meant for acute pain for seven to 10 days. Once you pass the seven to 10 day mark and a pain becomes chronic, 
opioids no longer work on the same pain receptors. So they actually don't do anything for your pain. They may dull your senses, which may make, give you the illusion of the placebo effect of making you feel better. Right. Um, and I was, I'm not that I did a lot of drugs in my early twenties <laughs> and I just was not going to go back to that. Right. And so I meditate, um, a lot. I use distraction for work, um, to help me. And then when it gets really bad, I just need very quiet. I just lay there in bed. I listen to a book. I watch a show. I, listen to a podcast and I'm just very still with a lot of heating pads because I have no thermal regulation whatsoever. Right. Yeah. I don't have regulation either. And this it's cold up here in New Jersey now and we're getting this, this bomb cyclone thing is coming across the country. So it's going to be in the single digits here in the next couple of days. So I don't know how you do it. Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, I mean, I'm 85 degrees and I'm comfortable. Yes. Well, I hibernate. I will, I will gladly hide in my house and where the heat is and make sure that I don't have to go out. But then again, on the flip side in the summertime, when it gets blazing hot, I can't go outside at all because I can't really sweat. And then, you know, you, you run into the whole dysreflexia thing. I'm sure you know a thing or two about that. Uh, oh, yeah. Being a quad. So, you know, you said something before about how, you know, we in the community, the disabled community, um, you know, we know a thing or two about having to work harder than everybody else. And I'm reminded I'm a child of the 80s. I'm reminded of the there was a great commercial that the army used to run. And it was we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day long. And I feel like saying, yeah, it's well, true. What I about, get up at 5 a.m. I know. Right. They don't know what our world is like, you know, to get out the door by nine o'clock. We're up at five in the morning to get a shower and get dressed and feed ourselves. Right. I mean, whatever your life is. If you're quadriplegic in particular, you have to usually tack on three to four hours at a minimum just for bowel, bladder, dressing, lights, surviving, right? Exactly. Yeah. And if you try to do as much of that uh, on your own, then it's it's uh, absolutely add all that on. Oh, there. yes. No, oh, yeah. And gosh. I have full-time caregivers who help with that. Yeah. Well, we can commiserate with that. And I'm also right there with you with the dark humor. I mean, I, I will often go out, as I said, it's freezing here, but I'll go outside without a coat on and people will look at me like I have six heads, you know, and I say, well, they say, John, why don't you put a coat on? And I say, because by the time I get the coat on myself, it'll be spring and I won't need it. It'll be warm again. So uh, ah, I, don't I love to, that. don't have to worry about things like that. But um, talk to me a little bit more about how you try to get um, folks in our community included in things. You talked about inclusion. What what, what would that be as far as work wise? Is that um, as far as yeah? So um, all the work I do um, from a professional standpoint, I work with the pan disability um, community on disability employment, partnering with a lot of different major organizations and companies around the world actually for different freelance opportunities for different training programs and educational programs because that's a huge passion of mine obviously on the health insurance front i give many speeches locally and nationally and on webinars and you name it on how to be your own advocate as a patient so you know i worked with spinalpedia and put a spent nine months writing a website on how to navigate the health insurance appeals process as a patient like, who are parties involved? What do you need to do? There's always this trust but verify. We cannot, I, I hate to say this, but with the medical system the way it is today, you cannot trust your doctors or durable medical providers to get all your paperwork in and everything you need. You need 
to, you don't need to know how to do it yourself, but you need to know how to ask the right questions Sure. and you need to review. So I focus a lot on that. Um, and then I also work at a beautiful company called Open Inclusion, where we work with people with disabilities and very well-paid research opportunities where products, where major brands, Google, Microsoft, you name it, different banks, they want to make products, services, experiences, digital environments more inclusive for screeners, for people with mobility impairments. Mm-hmm. I work with some smaller clients on um, diversity, equity, inclusion roadmaps as it specifically relates to disability. So I do a lot of public speaking and then I have my hat now this year for Miss Wheelchair America as well. Yeah. Well, that leads me into this pageant life. Was this something that uh, you did as a, as a young woman or is this something that you oh, kind of no, figured, no, no. <laughs> you, did you think that I have this great platform? Was the platform, did that come before the pageant thing? And you thought maybe I could marry these two together and get myself no, some more visibility? No, the platform had been, the platform had been organic. I've been working on it for a decade already. And in North Carolina, um, the organization that runs Miss Wilson, North Carolina, um, the executive director said, I really think you should run. And I said, I'm not doing a beauty pageant. Mm-hmm. She goes, it's not a beauty pageant. It's an advocacy. I said, okay. So I didn't really have to prepare much in the sense that I'm living what my platform is about. Yeah. So I work on legislation. I work with partner with organizations. I partner with people. Um, and so when the national competition came around, for me, it wasn't, win or lose, I was going to continue to do what I do anyway. Sure. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, and, and so the competition itself, I would say the most beautiful thing about it was that it was the women. Yes. Right. So I got to meet 20, 50 states didn't compete because not every state has their own competition, but it was 20, 21 or 22. Mm-hmm. And they all came over with all of our disabilities to even travel. There was like a Herculean effort. So now, to just tell me about meet other advocates or young women were just incredible. And, and we keep in touch. I keep in touch with a lot of them today. Mm-hmm. We all try to help each other and pass opportunities whenever we can. Sure. Now tell me what other disabilities were represented in, uh, in the uh, contestants. It wasn't just spinal cord injuries, right? It's not spinal cord, but the, one of the requirements is that you have use of a wheelchair, whether it's permanent and or temporary, like if you're an incomplete, you know, injury, for example, or you might have cerebral palsy or, you know, MS or whatever. Sure. Maybe it just requires that you have some use of a wheelchair. Sure. Now, for those of us who are familiar with the Miss America pageant that does all the, you know, the swimsuit stuff and the, uh, the, uh, the talent portion of the show, how does the Miss Wheelchair uh, American pageant differ? W- what type of things right. go so, on? Unfortunately, not a lot of people really know about it. Since it's just advocacy, there's a lot of workshops, judging panels. There is one night where you don't have to, you are not forced to wear a dress. I don't wear dresses. Right. I had a beautiful person design a top for me. Okay. Um, and you have to give a platform speech and you're asked questions as opposed to Miss America though. Um, I think the cutoff age is 27. There is no cutoff age okay. for Miss Wheelchair America. There is also Miss Wheelchair USA. There are actually different organizations with slightly different missions. I didn't understand that at first either. Um, and with Miss America, yes, you, it, it, it's about beauty in addition to your advocacy efforts and swimsuits and all of that. There's a woman, I think she's actually in North Carolina. Her name is like Madeline. Delphine, I think, and she won Miss Miss North Carolina, and um, and so, she, but she's obviously under twenty seven, I believe. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm not a beauty pageant person. I am just advocating the effort. So one thing that has afforded me a beautiful opportunity is, you know, working with different organizations and companies, having that Miss Wilshire America title. Yeah. It allows me now, I'm working with several lobbyists and our state senators to reintroduce more legislation um, on I'm, one of my life passions is to have adaptive exercise equipment for wheelchair users reclassified as durable medical equipment and medically necessary, mm, right? Yeah. Um, to reduce secondary complications that are far more expensive when you go to the hospital due to a sedentary lifestyle leading to a whole host of comorbidities oh, from blood pressure, yeah. cholesterol, bone loss, you name it. I, my first piece of legislation failed. I'm now working on the second because these things are measured in years, not months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm working with a beautiful coalition of doctors, lawyers, advocates, you name it. And we are now, we are on the cusp of having seat elevators um, for power wheelchairs reclassified as medically necessary with Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and it's challenging because we're just asking for reclassification of the code. But because it's Medicare, things are measured in years. Yeah, right. And every five to six years, a new button on a power wheelchair gets approved, right? Exactly. And so I went to, in September, I went to a congressional briefing as a patient advocate for seat elevators. So my hand is, my philosophy in life, I live by a quote my dad raised me with. He said, um, luck is the residue of design. Ooh. So people that you look at, they're like, oh my God, that person is so lucky. Or how do they become successful or whatever it may be. Well, they put a hell of a lot of work behind it. So exactly. I may have throw 30 things at the wall at the same time that most are blissfully unaware of. Maybe five work out um, at any given time if I'm lucky. And so people are like, wow, how did you do that, Ali? I'm like, well, the other quote I live by every morning I wake up is Winston Churchill. Um, con- um, success consists of moving from failure to failure without lack of enthusiasm. I feel <laughs> all the time, all the time. Right. But I just do it with a dark sense of humor. Yeah. And then you just, you dust yourself off and you move on to the next failure, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, H- Hoping is, that it, it, yeah. it works out because you, if you, like you said, if you throw enough, you know what, at the wall, something is bound to stick and it's the things that stick that have the la- the lasting legacy for, for so many of us. Well, that's it. And unfortunately, the movies have ruined this concept of life for us in the fact that so many movies have these happy endings, you know? Yeah, right. Life is hard. Life is never going to be easy. Life is certainly unfair, right? And yeah. my dad raised me. This is probably a little harsh. He goes, Allie, you deserve nothing, right? <laughs> you, yeah. you know, your success comes from the hard work you put into it. Yeah, sure. But I appreciate on the advocacy, people are like, where do you have time to do this? Now, yeah. I have so many friends who I'm not on Medicare or Medicaid, and I make too much money for that, which at first you were like, oh, well, what do you complain about, Allie? Everything is great. Well, I pay everything out of pocket, health insurance costs, caregivers, you name it. So at yeah. the end of the day, you may look at my salary and be like, wow, she makes a lot of money. But when you look at my expenses, you're like, wow, she spends a really lot of money yeah. at all. <laughs> and, but all my friends, a lot of friends that are on Medicare, Medicaid, they're literally trying to fight the system every day, trying to find care, you know, or do a patchwork care system, or they're fighting with Medicare with how many catheters they could get a month. Medicare tells you how many times you can pee in a month. I know. You've got to re-sterilize a catheter. How can we expect? It's like, I advocate being your own advocate. Mm. However, you need, sometimes you need help from other people because 
you can't advocate for yourself because you're literally your Maslow's hierarchy of needs are not being met yeah. on a basic level. So how can you enjoy anything else in life when you're trying to figure out how to pee? I know. I mean, that's just, it's insane. So it that's is. why I do what I do. Yeah. Now, as far as the wearing the title, do you have certain responsibilities that you have to keep up and, and do you have to travel a lot, uh, make appearances, that yeah. type of thing? I do have um, responsibilities. I do have appearances locally. We, there's a couple events nationally. I go to the abilities expos where I wear my hat. Um, a lot of it is, is what you make of it, right? I mean, there's certain minimum requirements. I like to go above and beyond. Sometimes my appearances aren't as, you know, here's a local community center. Let me go talk to these, you know, talk to a group of folks, which I will. But because my platform is health insurance yeah, and a lot of what I do is behind the scenes and I'm working with some very large providers right now, not health insurance, but like durable medical providers, you know, it's slow moving. And so, you know, I love, it's great to have that picture with you know, the crown and, and being in the community, which I do. Right. But a lot of what I do is just, it's, 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 it's more slow moving. But yes, there are commitments. And then in 2023, in August, I go back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the competition is held and then pass the crown over to the new title holder. Uh-huh. Now, did they, the night of the uh, the crowning, did they teach you the uh, the wave, the, the Miss America wave that they always have as they're uh, going down and playing the music? Well, no, but I've, I've managed a little quad paw. I call my hands my paws. Yeah. I have a little quad paw wave. <laughs> I have, yeah, I have fists. I have fists of fury because I can't open my fingers. So that's what I tell people. I like your sense yeah, of humor of very much, Ali. Yeah, a lot of my friends can't open their hands. I had the problem in the beginning. And then I, every night, I have these little pillows they put under my hands and I stretch my hands out every day, all day, throughout the day. I mean, like 50 to 100 times, I'm just constantly flexing my hands, but I've been doing that for 12 years. Yeah. So it's like I have some tone. Yes. But when you look at my hands and pe- and I hold a cup, but I'm just essentially with adaptive behavior, I'm just balancing it right. on the back of my wrist from, from tenodesis, meaning I can yep. uh, have wrist extensors. People are like, you're not paralyzed. I'm like, okay, I know I look less paralyzed than I am, but I promise you my hand does not work. Yeah, yeah. I have the problem where I have the hardest time opening my hands to pick something up. But then once I have it, it's like I have the Vulcan death grip. Yeah, I can't let go of it. So I try to put things in my car and I'm like, people are like, come on, John, let's go. And I'm like, I can't let go of my knapsack. I can't do it. Oh, and now I have, I'm blessed with for, for the last, it'll be a year this coming February. I I got myself a service dog from canine companions and he's amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. We have a couple of other dogs at the facility where I work. And when he sees them, it's like a bat out of hell. He wants to chase after them. And sometimes I can't really let go of the leash. And it's almost like he's going to drag me down the hallway. But it's funny about, uh, yeah, you know, the use of our hands. You'd think, geez, who would have ever, who would have ever and thought you know that? What must be use, I don't know what's more useful, your hands or your triceps. Yeah. So I didn't realize how useful those little suckers are. Yeah. They allow you to push up. So one of my friends, she's a C7 quad, uh, C6, 7. I'm, I'm a C6 like complete, but she's a little more incomplete yep. and she doesn't have the use of her hands, but she has her triceps. So she uses a manual chair and she can push up and she can push herself. And I'm like, 
damn it. And I get, I, get, I totally get tricep quad jealousy. Definitely. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> now I was in doing some research. I see, uh, I saw a video where you were swimming in a pool and you love to be a, uh, you're in the pool. You're like a mermaid. I think you said, are you still doing a uh, pool? Not, not just therapy, for, but for you to, oh, to get yeah. out there so and feel I, free. One of my passions, even though I did a shallow water dive, breaking my neck was to get back in the water. So when I was in Miami a year after my accident, one of my pressure sores healed, I had a, huh, a military-like swim instructor from Venezuela, and she like said, sink or swim, baby. Yeah, get in <laughs> there. I would drown a little bit and inhale a lot of water, and she, she was teaching me safety log rolls. And she goes, you're going to learn to swim at the C6 quadriplegic, paralyzed from the chest down with no hand function and some upper body Jeez. mobility without floaties or any other assistive devices. I'm like, lady, you are insane. <laughs> anyway, about six months into it, she was right, it just happened i just kept at it so you can literally throw me in the pool and i have learned to do adapted strokes uh my videos all over yeah i saw that. that and so it was good. i just swim independently for 45 minutes and do my last and then i lay on a floaty toy and i'm a sun goddess so then i just bake nice. and the temperature because i don't have any don't sweat with thermal regulation and autonomic issues of course right um the water controls my temperature and then i literally pass out for like two hours <laughs> after my last and it is the time where you can't talk to me i don't want to hear anybody's problems it is like alley time and it's so meditative and it's so warm and yes i get super tan which makes me happy but it really is more of just a self-care thing and so I do that for four months to five or however long the pool's open in the summer in Raleigh. Wow. Alley time. So everybody knows to stay away during alley time. I'm very strict about that. I, I am. I will listen to your problems and help you with anything in life at any time of the day. I will put everything down. But when I am in the pool for those two to three hours, it is about me. <laughs> Step away from the vehicle. It's alley time. Oh, I love yeah. that. So what, with all this that you have going on, what is next for Allie personally and then professionally? Okay. Allie personally is going to be a year more self-care with um, working with my therapist more because I think everyone in life should have a therapist. I just do because that's just a good life practice. I'm going to start Reiki healing and I'm going to try to make, and I meditate every day just to make sure that I keep up the self-care because even as a quadriplegic, I get up at 5 a.m. every day and I stop working around 9 p.m. Now, I'm not physically in my chair the whole time. I like get in bed around 3 or 4, do caregiving stuff, and then I work for the rest of the night in bed and do calls. Mm -hmm. um, I'm making sure I keep those kindness boundaries to myself because I always want to help people. So sometimes I do that at the detriment of my own my own self, like my own self-care. So that's personally. Professionally, I am working to get more consulting clients. I am starting, I started last month, actually. Um, I am doing certification year. So I am going to probably, every five weeks, I'm going to do a new certification and something interesting. Human-centered design, inclusive design, social impact investing, business leadership, effective communicating. So I've already done, I have to just figure out which one to do first. I've done all the homework. And then another goal I have is uh, professionally to increase my speaking career as well, because people reach out to me, which is great, but I want to be a little bit more targeted in my approach on that. Yeah. And how do you get involved in that? I would love to do that myself. I mean, I've, I've been at this game so for 30 take, years. Yeah. I take every, uh, I love people and I network like 
a badass out of hell <laughs> that I'm locally and I'm pleasantly persistent. So when somebody recommends someone to me or they make an email intro, I will keep following up with that person pleasantly and very kindly until they re- until they reach back out to me, even if it takes me 25 times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I do every podcast, every Zoom, every article, free, paid, you name it. I take everything my way. So it's like, for example, I did this really beautiful, um, the Northeast Rotary Club for the East Coast and um, for the East Coast of the United States asked me to be a panelist on a disability, diversity, equity, and inclusion panel with some other folks around the glo- around the world. And there were many, uh, a couple thousand people in the group. And I did it. It was beautiful. And, and a gentleman who runs a different medical organization reached out to me afterwards and said, hey, would you be our keynote speaker, you know, this coming year at a medical conference. So you never know who you're going to meet, how you're going to meet them, how are you going to affect their lives. But it really involves like virtual hustling yeah, yeah, <laughs> a yeah. lot, right? Yes, um, it does. And, and it, it involves, you know, if there's a topic you're interested in or you know you're going to meet somebody or have a Zoom call with somebody, you research the hell out of them, their interests, their company, you name it. Yeah. And ask a lot of questions, be your own investigative reporter. And then if you really want to take it up, I, I've been having some calls with um, public speaking companies and they want, and they have like their own lead generators, et cetera, et cetera. I'm right. not, but they want a lot of money up front, which I guess if you're successful at it, it pays for itself. Yeah. I don't have that money yet, nor am I ready to take that step yet because I have so many other things on my docket. Sure. But that's that's kind of um, kind of where I'm at at the moment. Yeah. Plus, um, I also, like a chameleon, I adapt to my audience. So I don't always have the same story. Who am I, who am I speaking with? Am I speaking to a bunch of patients, advocates, and wheelchairs? who want to get a wheelchair approved or am I speaking with doctors that are trying to work with medical providers or am I speaking with the finance department? I'm just taking health insurance as an example. Right. So it's really being able to learn your cater, your, you know, your message to your audience. And I've learned one thing, whoever you are as a public speaker, nobody wants to hear you speak for more than 40 minutes because you just get bored no matter how engaging you are. Sure. Sure. And I always start out with like a really personal humanizing dark humor story so you get people right in the beginning and then finding a way my dad always said the sign because he was a journalist and publishing for many 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 years mm-hmm. he said the sign of true intelligence ally is not how much you know it's about being able to explain very complicated concepts in a way that people will understand them but not make them feel stupid right and i was sage advice i'm like that is really great right you must have had the most amazing dad because you've quoted him now at I least do. a half a dozen times. And so that is awesome that he's, he's imparted so well, much wisdom. Well, then I everything to my mom. In 12 years, she has dedicated every day and night. I mean, I have caregivers, but she has dedicated every day and night to me. And we are besties. And, and she's a crazy little German woman, but <laughs> I would not be here without her. My, I mean, yes, my family, everyone, friends, but my parents have been unconditionally supportive yeah. and I appreciate not everyone has that. No. And that is why I never complain about my life because even as a quad with all the thing I deal with, I just, I feel, yes, it sucks. Yeah. Anyone that tells you they're like, Oh, I'm happier after my accident. Life is more fulfilling. BS. I'm sorry. I'm going to call bullshit yeah, on that. Okay. Me too. <laughs> I'm going to say you can have, like, I wouldn't be where I am probably without my accident. 
But yeah, if I could be walking again tomorrow, absolutely I would be walking again tomorrow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Last two for Let's me. Stay to stay. Right, no doubt. Last two for me. Tell me about uh, the quirky quad and, and what you try to get across with that. Well, it started in China. I started a website, still live, called the China Quad Diaries.org. And it was a documentation of my several years in China, my surgery, my adventures. And then I got back to the United States. And, you know, a year or two passed. And I was, um, a couple, someone said to me, you should, you know, with your life stories and what you do and everything, I normalize sex and insurance. And you know, I talk about everything. It doesn't really matter, the, you know, any topic I, I love. And um, I saw on Facebook, I put a poll for names, like 10 names. Like, if guys, if I were to start a website, what would you name it? And Quirky Quad One, I, I gave them 10 options. Okay. Because <laughs> it describes who I am. Sure. And it actually started out as a blog on sex, sass, and spinal cord injury adventure. <laughs> it started out because I was writing about my um, promiscuous dating experiments during my year in bed. <laughs> Okay. So it was definitely more relationship and sexual focus. And then over the years, it bloomed into so much more. And so about nine months ago, I was like, okay, I'm ha- I was handing this card to a, um, an appellate court judge in North Carolina. And my card had two ladybugs having sex, which was tasteful, but funny. <laughs> and instead of blog on sex sass. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. Funny. But that doesn't encompass just who I am anymore. So I sat down and worked with a designer and redid my whole logo and brand. And that's where normalizing dis- disability through dark humor and determination came about. Yep. And so, you know, my website, I write about pretty much anything. And I don't plan it out. People plan their content. I wake up in the middle of the night and I have dreams. I wake up and I put it on my little my, I have a little notepad about articles to write. Sure. And then when I feel like writing it, because writing is like breathing for me, I just sit down and I write. That's cool. I, I write for magazines. A lot of people pay me. For any nonprofit, I always write for free. Yeah. You know, but if, if somebody, company wants me to write, obviously I'm going to charge them for that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And the last one I and have for I you. A, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's what I ask everybody. It's the last question. And it came about in a funny way. I was waiting in the doctor's office with a good friend of mine. It's, it's kind of weird. A, a good buddy of mine that I went to high school with, he, he got banged up in a, uh, a kneeboarding accident about 15 years after I had my accident. So here's two great friends from high school, both, you know, with severe spinal cord injuries, but we were waiting in the hallway for a doctor's appointment. And I just looked at him and I said, Hey T, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again what's the first thing you would do and while he pondered that i heard there was a woman from behind us said i would go out and garden in in my yard and then i heard a guy say i would go into my garage and tinker around with my woods working so i put the question to you ali ingersoll if i could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again what's the first thing that you would do there's two things and i can't decide so i'm going to tell you both okay First, I would put on a backpack and I would go on a wilderness survival program, go to Australia and lose myself for eight weeks in the outback. Okay. That sounds <laughs> number cool. one. Okay. And then I love wilderness survival trips. And number two, when I would come back, I would do everything in my goddamn power. And I say that seriously mm-hmm. to raise funds and start a foundation because this is one of my lifelong goals, whether I achieve it or not, I don't know. And I would pay for every person who needs a full-time caregiver mm. without question. Yeah. 
Yeah, because that's it's so hard to come by. I I hear friends. Um, I work at. Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's up here in New Jersey. It's where Chris mm-hmm. Reeve came to do his rehabilitation and uh, a bunch of other folks who... Uh, yeah, I work with the Christopher Reeve Foundation a lot on a lot of projects. Okay, so you know about us and and I hear that from so many people. They, you know, they're newly injured. Their family is sitting in the, in the rotunda and they all have that same look like, you know, can someone get the license plate of the train that just ruined our lives? And they're looking for people, like you said, like care Givers and insurance, and it's such a hard thing to do. So that would be a great thing that you could come up with that. I just, you know, caregiving is if you don't have your basic needs met, how are you expected to live a life? Mm. If you're terrified if someone's going to come in the morning or show up, to help you go to the bathroom, dress, shower. Yeah. I mean, that I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. And, and there are a couple people that I really am not fond of in this life. However, I still would wish that on them. Right. And then to find the right people, you know, you, you, you build a bond with somebody to become a family member. If you find the right people, that it's finding those right people, that it is the hardest thing. Well, it's one out of 10. For every 10 people you may interview, you'll find one, maybe a unicorn, but it's a numbers game, just like dating. Yeah. It's the same concept. And unfortunately, we as human beings have this tendency because of our beliefs and our values and just our ego and our, uh, and our being hurt. Because when somebody does something bad to us, we unconsciously have this habit of bringing that baggage onto the new person in, in that life. Yeah. And that's not fair because they're a new independent person, independent of the previous person. So it's best to give them benefit of the doubt. Now, you may get burned 10 times in a row, but they're still independent. That's just statistics, yes, right? absolutely. But unfortunately, we hold on to that. And that creates so much anxiety and stress in our lives. It took me... Oh shit. It took me eight years, eight or nine years to finally be able to let that go. And it wasn't like a magic overnight pill. It was this constant self-talk and work that I had to be like, this person's independent. And you also have to realize no matter how many becomes a family member who helps you, unless they're your actual family, they have their own families. So you are never going to be a firm priority to anyone. And that's not to be rude, not even to your your parents are different. That's like a different breed if you're forcing that great parent. Yep. But even your brothers and sisters, they may be there for you, but they ha- they may have their own family. So you have to be comfortable with yourself knowing that, unfortunately, you may not be, unless you find a significant other, you may not be a priority in the way that you want or feel like you deserve. And, and being able to let that go and accept that is really hard. It is hard. And I can see it on tons of faces. And the older I get, I'm, I'm going to face that myself, I know, because you mentioned I have, a, I have a sister who is amazing and wonderful and does so much for me. But as you said, she has two college-age children and a husband and, you know, life gets in the way of everything. So it's it's something that uh, that we all have to take into account, those of us that are in uh, in our shoes. And uh, Ali Ingersoll, I want to thank you so much for, for carving some time out of your uber busy day. I mean, I'm tired just listening no. to all the things that you do. Oh my gosh, I need to take a nap after this. You you have uh, have talked and told me so much about all these different things that you do. And so uh, I thank you for the time and and also on behalf of the community that you're that you're going to bat for. I thank you for all you're trying to do for us and all that you have been doing for all of us and that all that you will do in the future. So thank you. Absolutely, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast.
And I can't think of a better way to end the final quadcast of 2022 than with a blast. Thank you again, Ali Ingersoll, for joining me today and for all you do on behalf of our community. The time and effort you put in to benefit all of us is appreciated more than you know, my friend. Thanks, as always, to Chris Parapesco at Harbor Picture Company in New York City for making this little podcast recorded on a desk in the corner of my bedroom sound so darn professional. And on behalf of Jochen, the Wonder Service Dog, I would like to wish you and your families a happy Hanukkah, a very Merry Christmas, and a happy and above all healthy 2023. Until we meet again, I am John McAleby, and I thank you for your time. I don't